Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we start our coverage of Book 7 of The Dark Tower, The Dark Tower, Part 1, Chapters 1 through 3. Let's start the show! Book 7 picks up with Jake and Father Callahan ready for their raid on the Dixie Pig. The carved turtle becomes an important tool to help them gain an advantage, but the road to the Dark Tower ends for Father Callahan, although he has regained his faith in God and the White. Meanwhile, Eddie and Roland witness these events via Aven Call and are even able to have some effect on them. After returning to 1977 Maine, Eddie realizes their time there isn't done. They need to get John Cullum to help them save the Rose. The chapter ends with Roland providing some mercy to a walk-in from his world. Greetings, constant listeners. Want to support the show? Check out our Patreon page to learn how you can access exclusive content. We've set up three patron levels, Apprentice, Gunslinger, and Cotet. Each level provides rewards as a thank you from us to you. Find out more information at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Thanks again for being a loyal listener. Jay, we made it. Yeah. We are at book seven of the Dark Tower series, the eighth book in our coverage, because we went through book 4.5 first, but here we are. Yes, we're in the end game now. I would think so. You never know if King's going to surprise us and drop another book on us without letting us know. Well, I mean, just like a lot of the characters keep sing- saying to each other, we're in the end game now. Well, they would know better than us. Yes, because after all, they are characters in a book by another character named Stephen King. As we have done with each of these books when we started off, we'd like to go through a little bit of the publication history, and I want to thank Bev Vincent's Road to the Dark Tower for providing some of this. King began writing this book in April of 2002. This was just weeks after finishing Song of Susanna. In June 2002, he was about a third of the way through the book, and he took a month off to recharge. And he let his fans know this through an interview of himself on the website, in which SK interviewed Steve King. We'll link to that interview in our show notes, but I will say that there might be some mild spoilers. It's even possible for a writer to spoil his own work in a book that's promoting said work. I don't know if that's possible, but there were one or two things that I noticed. I was like, oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. And then it actually impacted this section of the book for me. So just an FYI, if you want to wait to look at that interview. It is interesting, though. We're going to talk a little bit about that later. He finished the first draft of this book in October of 2002. And then Bev's book gets a little sketchy on the dates. He's been very good up to this point. And he just says like somewhere in mid to late 2003, the Dark Tower was finalized. And I have a feeling that's because his book was written simultaneously as Stephen King was working on it. So I have a feeling he might have been looking at it in galleys and didn't have all the dates before he went to press. That makes sense. This book was published on September 21st, 2004, which was Stephen King's 57th birthday. 
Happy birthday, Steve. It was published by Grant and Scribner, as the last few books have, and this was just three months after Song of Susanna. July 2005 is when the trade paperback was published, and in addition to Bev Vincent's book coming out around the same time as this final book, Robin Firth's Dark Tower Concordance was also published around the same time. Part one came out in 2003, and part two came out in 2004. And that book was actually written by Robin for Stephen King himself to keep everything straight as he was tackling these last three books. Yep. She had done such a good job of it that he gave her his blessing to publish them as their own book, thinking his fans would like it. And and they did. Yeah. It's been a useful reference for me. I've tried not to use it too much because I didn't want to get spoiled, and I know there's some in there, but uh, every now and then I do look at, at something to confirm names and places, et cetera. Shortly after this, his next book was The Colorado Kid, which was published in 2005. That was done for Hard Case Crime, which is a crime pulp type novel publisher. And the interesting thing about that book is it's only 184 pages, which seems like something that King could write off in about two weeks if he wanted to. Well, if you go by the pace that he wrote the Dark Tower books, I think he wrote it in an afternoon. Yeah, that could be. Yep. And then the next two books after that were Cell and Lisey's Story in 2006. And as you may have noticed, we have Michael Whelan back as illustrator. He is the only illustrator to repeat within the series. Of course, he did the first book in the series. Yeah. And in that interview that I mentioned earlier that King did with himself, he calls Michael Whelan the Alpha and the Omega. And he was very excited to have Whelan work on this book, even though he hadn't actually confirmed with Michael Whelan that he would do that yet, which I'm sure that um, Whelan was like, aha, he wants me. I can hold him over the barrel to get as much money as I want for these illustrations. <laughs> and King also says in that interview that Michael Whelan's depiction is how he pictured Roland in his head. The other interesting thing about Michael Whelan's illustrations is there's a lot of them in this book. Not only do they grace the full color tippins that are in throughout the book, but chapter title pages, the indicia page throughout, there's lots of one-off illustrations, including one of the three Kings. He's got a tri-picked of Stephen King himself. And that is, a, I think, another echo of how Whelan illustrated book one, because he did these, like, these illustrated headers and, and illustrated letters that would begin a chapter or begin a section. And I really like that about book one. That's where, you know, you see the, the raven on Roland's shoulder and the, the jawbone around an eye and, the, you know, the letter I and stuff like that. We didn't get that kind of thing in any of the other books. Nice return to form. So that sets us up on book seven. And the first thing that I noticed as we get into the themes of this section, Jay, is that King has set the stakes high very early. Yeah, it's like as high as season one of Game of Thrones. <laughs> Father Callahan, he is told, the boy must go on. Your part in the story is almost done. His is not. And sure enough, before we get to the end of chapter one, Father Callahan is gone. Yeah. It's kind of bittersweet. Like, Callahan's a character that maybe we never thought we'd meet again because he was in Salem's Lot, and that was a book all unto itself, and then suddenly... Callahan's back. He's part of the Dark Tower story. And he's with us for Wolves of the Kala. And then he's around for a tiny bit of Song of <laughs> Susanna. And then here he is again. So, so he's in three Dark Tower books yep. on top of being in Salem's Lot. It's like, oh, yeah, 
I really liked him as a character. Stephen King really built him up way beyond the character that he was in Salem's Lot. It made him seem really important. But I think he met a a good end. It aligned with who he was as a character and what his character had been through. I totally agree. So early on, while I enjoyed the what we called the sequel to Salem's Lot mm-hmm. in Wolves of the Caller, when we get this whole 150-page digression into what Callahan had been doing since the events in Salem's Lot that led him into Midworld and meeting up with the Cotet. At the time, I think you and I had discussed, like, well, why, why Callahan? Why not some other character from another Stephen King book? You know, is it just because King had this idea of he wanted to continue telling these stories about vampires and the types of vampires they are and, and how they exist? And it does come full circle here, and you can see how his arc runs, and it comes to a nice end, not only for the character, but just sort of how that all fits together, where these vampires are an important part of the evil creatures that are within the Dixie Pig. And because Callahan has dealt with them, he knows how to deal with them in this case. Mm -hmm. And it really becomes important to his character as well as he gets that redemption. He says, as he's dying and being engulfed by these vampires, free at last, I believe this is redemption. And it's good, isn't it? Quite good indeed. Callahan regains his faith along the way. The cross actually, which failed him against Barlow in Salem's Lot, He's able to not only not need the cross, but just have the power of the white flow through him. And I almost pictured him, and I think the Michael Whelan illustration sort of has the the flames coming out of his fingers like the Emperor in Return of the Jedi. You know, he's got Hmm. this, instead of evil power, he's got this good power that's that's flowing through him and destroying these these vampires throughout the Dixie Pig. So what you're saying that instead of force lightning, he has... White lightning? White lightning. Oh, yeah. And Callahan's able to use the turtle to focus this energy as well and and push them away. So whereas before I wondered why Callahan and why the vampires, it all started to come together here. Yeah, it definitely does. King worked pretty hard to incorporate not only a lot of his important main characters from other books and storylines, but also the the evil characters and the monsters from his mm. other books. So we begin to realize that everything that we've encountered in his other books, which you know we've talked about this before in other ways, but there are vampires in the universe or in the multiverse that revolves around the Dark Tower. Of course, there are going to be vampires. And that's something that Roland just treats as a matter of course. Like, yeah, yeah, there are vampires. Yeah, there are tahines with bird heads and the body of a human and all that stuff and slow mutants etc etc but for callahan he's one of the few human beings on his earth that had ever become aware of vampires yeah so that made him the perfect character to match against these vampires because apparently the vampires are an important part of the army of the crimson king yes they are his foot soldiers, and they have immense power and very long lives, so they are useful tools for this supreme evil character. Yeah, we needed somebody like Callahan, somebody who knew what the vampires are about and how to, how to fight them. Having said all that, I did find something problematic about this ending, and that's that in Song of Susanna, the main drive for Callahan is that he finds out that he is a fictional character. Mm-hmm. Unlike the other characters who start to realize what's happening 
it impacts Callahan more because he actually picks up a book that was written by Stephen King and sees his name on the page and sees his thoughts transcribed into a book that is titled a novel. And Mm -hmm. he seems to be the one who's having the most problems with that. And that makes sense because Roland is such a man of the moment and a man of action. It's too abstract for him. He, he, He understands it, but doesn't really seem to care. Eddie seems to care and realizes the importance of Stephen King. But Eddie hasn't been written yet, and he hasn't seen his his life described in a book yet. Exactly. He knows that at some point, King will write about me. But on the other hand, it could be because I've met him and started to talk to him. And so that could be it. Callahan is the one who, specifically in book seven, he has this really crisis of faith almost about himself. And it it seemed very important. And... That was one of the reasons I think he was looking forward to going to Maine as opposed to New York when they went through the door in Song of Susanna. And even at the end of Song of Susanna, he seemed to be dealing with it. And he's not going to be able to come to terms with that and come to grips with it because he dies at the end of this. So I did feel like that piece could have been handled better in some way. I agree. I am frustrated for Callahan, the character, that he doesn't get to at least learn more about this phenomenon and confront King directly and just say, why did you write me like this? Why did you give me these problems or put me in this situation? Why did you do this to me? But I also kind of feel like King took this idea. He introduced us to this notion of metafiction in this format of characters becoming aware of themselves as characters and then having the opportunity to even meet the author of the books in which they are characters. And then he transferred that to other characters. You touched on this by saying, you know, like Eddie and Roland are the ones who ultimately meet and confront the character of Stephen King. And they're not the ones who care the way Callahan cares. They're not the ones who are affected the way Callahan's affected. But the connecting tissue between all of that is us, the audience. And I feel like relying on us to make that connection is a little weak. Yeah. We get it. Here's this notion. Here's this idea and concept. And here's a character confronting it. But the character who does it isn't the one who started it. There's no transition except us, really. So it's a little little disappointing there. Now, again, this might be part of King setting the stakes early that characters aren't going to get what they want potentially. Callahan doesn't get what he wants and the stakes are very high because he's dead before that happens. So I think it puts us as the reader on notice. Even though Callahan isn't one of the major four major characters, he is important enough that his death sort of came as a shock to me in chapter one. It was a nice callback that Callahan actually commits suicide a second time. So the first time he died was committing suicide in the building to get out of the grasps of Sayer. And this happens again when he uses the weapon to to shoot himself and again get out of the grasp of Sayer. He is escaping the fate of being eaten by vampires or consumed by vampires by killing himself. And while we definitely agree with him on this choice, it's like, oh, I either become the thing that I most despise or I kill myself. And those are my only options. It makes sense. But it also seems kind of strange for this very religious Catholic priest 
to choose to commit a mortal sin and kill himself. And not only once, but twice. Yeah. Most people don't get a chance to kill themselves <laughs> more than once. Not to make light of suicide, but I'm just saying, like, you know, he actually does this and is brought back to life through the the magic and fantasy of, of these books. And then he does it again. Feels like maybe his faith is still just what's convenient or what makes sense for him personally. Yeah, although we do see the power run through him. He does mention that it's not just God, but Gan and the light. He realizes that there's this force in the universe, at least that's flowing through him, and he has faith in it. Mm -hmm. As far as the teachings of the Catholic Church, he does seem to be a little more flexible on in the fact, as you pointed out, he commits suicide. But then also, he realizes that he has regret about defending Susanna's pregnancy back in the Kala. Yeah. He says, quote, they should have snuffed out the baby's life when they had the chance. Yeah. Now you realize that. Thanks, Father. Mm -hmm. That would have been helpful uh, 500 pages ago. Yep. Pour one out for Father Callahan. Cheers. Yes. We move into the second chapter, and there's a lot of focus on Roland. And Roland is almost powerless in this moment. He's been since the gunfight really with John Cullum in the in Maine, he's almost been passive as a character. It's been Eddie who's been leading him around Maine and saying, We need to find Tower so that we can get this document signed and here's what we're gonna do and John Cullum's gonna help us and we're also going to visit Stephen King and throughout that it's Eddie who's mostly questioning King more than, than Roland and Roland understands that it's important for Eddie to go see King, but ultimately that's not what he wants, right? What he still wants is to get to the tower. And we see that powerlessness yet again here as this wave, the Avon call, sort of pushes them into the 1999 world where they can have some impact on the events. Um, but he really is, he doesn't have sort of any agency at this point. Yeah. And he also doesn't seem to have the correct abilities to succeed at this point in the story. It, he can't read English in the world where Stephen King is or in or in Eddie's world. He can only make out certain words and say certain words. Like he can't say aspirin, he says Aston and, and all that stuff. And when he's trying to read the deed to the, the lot that has the rose in it, he can only make out a couple of words. So it's like the the fundamental tools that he would have to have to be successful if he were on his own aren't available to him. Yeah. He truly is dependent upon his companions whenever he's not in his own environment. And he needs to spend, so it seems so far, needs to spend a lot of time in these other environments where he is that fish out of water. Right. It's kind of interesting because he, he, Roland, acknowledges that he feels like he is closer to the tower than he's ever been. Like he just, he kind of feels it in his bones or something. And he's, he's so close. He could almost taste the achievement, but it, it's almost like he couldn't possibly achieve his goal without all of this help. That seems very unlike Roland, the, the Roland that we've kind of come to know, like this guy can, he's just, he's like the juggernaut. Like he just will not stop. And not even when it just comes to the guns, like he's found yeah. solutions out of problems, even when he doesn't need to use the guns. But here mm -hmm. he seems like I said, passive. He needs other characters to help him through that. Right. And there's one line, and it's it's a very short line, and it's sort of buried that I really wanted to unpack. And it's, King says, this world's written words would always be mostly mystery to him. 
meaning Roland. And it's as he's looking at the deed. Eddie's the one driving the car, and he's looking at this piece of paper, and he knows the piece of paper is important, but in Roland's abstract sense, he just doesn't get it. Like, really? Like, this paper is important? I, I don't understand it. But it's more than that. I mean, it's this world's written words would always be a mystery to him. And I think it's beyond just that piece of paper, but it's actually the language that King uses. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's created this whole world. He's just spent a whole book talking about how King is the character who's invented this world. And it's those words that King's putting together that creates this world. And I don't even think that Roland can wrap his mind around that. We've said Eddie has wrapped his mind around it. Mm-hmm. We talked about how Callahan got it, but it's not even that Roland seems to get it. And Roland had that opportunity when he saw sort of everything at once in that vision in the gunslinger. But I wonder if he still just doesn't get it. Like that there's something about the tower and his adventure that it's not clicking in him for whatever reason. And that's because it's words written by Stephen King in our world. Yeah. Put, he's not able to get that. I'm really glad that you brought this to my attention because I totally didn't see any more than the surface on this line. The way you, you put it, it's easy to see the written words that Roland can understand as like a metaphor for like the building blocks or the atoms or the molecules of this world. King, the character, is an author and he is the creator of all of this, this entire multiverse, all of the worlds, the tower itself, the rose itself. King has dreamt it into existence, but he's built it atom by atom, word by word. Yeah. And Roland can't read the words, which means he can't make sense or fully comprehend the the world itself and or or maybe see it from a certain level. He can see the trees, but he can't see the forest. Right. Or he's colorblind and he can't see he can't see the whole shape because it has colors that don't register to him. Other characters like Eddie grasp it immediately. Susanna grasps this stuff immediately, but Roland can't and he never will. And despite all of his great power and skill and endurance, there are still things that will escape him. And this is the first time, this is the eighth book, that King and the other characters within the story have been telling me Roland isn't that swift. Roland doesn't have the imagination. And that's been his greatest strength, but it will always, in some ways, handicap him a little bit. And this is the first time that I've come to see like, yes, that could be true to a degree. Because it's clear he's not getting this and he never will. I've always defended him like, no, he's way smarter. Like everybody says, you're dumb, you're slow, you're plotting. Maybe he doesn't quite have a an abstract imagination. But I don't think he's dumb or slow, but it's the imagination part that I, I'm finally coming around to here. Yeah. They do say this world, and a lot of that is happening when Roland has been pulled out of Midworld and into mm-hmm. what is the other worlds than these that, you know, are in most cases our world. So a lot of it is his being a fish out of water. Like I said, Maybe I was looking for it, but anytime that King puts in lines like these and starts talking about the written word, I start thinking about the metafiction and what that means, and it just seemed it seemed like there was a lot happening there. Yeah. The other interesting thing about Roland here is that he can't control Jake either. So when Callahan and Jake are in the Dixie Pig and Roland is using his voice through Callahan's voice to try to order Jake to go, and Jake's just not listening to him like Mm-hmm. Even though he knows it's the voice of his din, he's not 
going to leave Callahan's side and not going to leave this fight with the, in the Dixie Pig. When we see it from the second angle, from Roland's angle, Roland says, I should have schooled him better in betrayal, yet all the gods know I did the best I could. <laughs> you sure did the best you could, Roland. Haven't we been saying since book one that a major theme is that Jake doesn't totally trust Roland because he let him die once? I mean, is there a better example of betrayal than that? I can't think of one. I, I simply cannot think of a better lesson in betrayal than letting Jake fall under the mountain yeah. in pursuit of the man in black. Like, such a perfect example. It's almost a cliche. In some cases, you're fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice, shame on you. But in this case, it's like, fool me once, you let me die. I'm not going to ever let that happen again. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What more could Roland have taught Jake about betrayal? I guess a, a further thought on that is that maybe as a person, you can only learn or be taught so much of what betrayal is all about, like what it means to be betrayed, what it means to betray. And the rest is sort of innate, like you sort of have to be capable of betrayal on your own before you can be as good at it as Roland. Yeah. You know, Roland is already like 10 times more capable of betrayal than Jake ever would be. And that's why he was able to let Jake fall. But Jake could never come close to that. So no matter how well Roland teaches him, like, oh, I'll let you fall. Oh, I'll let you fall again. You know, like, he's still never going to be that capable of betrayal. Right. Eventually, Jake does get moving. And we sort of end this section with Jake running off to try to save Susanna, who we don't see in these first three chapters. Callahan's succumbing to the vampires and... Eddie and Roland continue their adventures, which we're not going to talk too much about, but Roland gets to meet somebody from Midworld who needs to be put out of his misery. He's sort of a walk-in who's wandered in and obviously dying of some sort of radiation sickness or something else, and Roland gets some information from him and ends him. So, Yep. Well, let's move on to a section that we're calling The Consequences of King, Jay. Yes. We've been dancing around this a little bit already, but King's still sort of inserting himself into this section of the book, even though he's not here physically as a character. Mm -hmm. At one point, he acknowledges that no one would believe it in fiction if John Cullum was the character who would come in and save the day because he's such a minor character, right? He's already just too handy the first time around, and then they sent him on his way, and he's you know just like a certain paper boat who's out of the story forever, and then- right. Bammo, here he is again. And they realize that, and sure enough, there he is to save the day. And it's sort of like, what? I mean, what's happening here, Jay? I mean, there's so much, is King being too clever by half? Yeah. Is he pointing out the ridiculousness of this all? I don't know. Like, like have we gone fully through the looking glass? Like, <laughs> have we gone past metafiction and through to the other side? And now we're where, wherever that is. Like, once you push through that membrane and pop through the other side, like, of metafiction like are you just is it another layer of metafiction or is it something else entirely because king has been using metafiction and then deeper metafiction and then eventually he put himself in the story he's hanging lanterns on whole plot decisions like let's just bring that john Cullum character back and then hang a, a lantern on it and that's how we'll get away with it he's like matthew lillard in scream explaining exactly how the movie's gonna work yeah Exactly. King comes up again, right? 
there's a quote, there was a generator here, not Cy King, but the potential of Cy King. This is when Eddie and Roland sort of are driving through the backwoods of Maine and they can feel this energy that's everywhere. And they wonder, is it, is it in fact King that's bringing in these walk-ins? Is it sort of the energy? Is it all this that's happening here? Is that King? And it's like, that line made me wonder, is King the source of the power or is he the beneficiary of its power? Is it that he is in its proximity and therefore he becomes like a god and able to create these worlds through his fiction? Or is he, through the power of Gan and his navel, able to spin these tales which become a reality unto themselves? And it's sort of a chicken and egg thing, right? Yep. Maybe they just sort of feed on each other or one generates the other in, in perpetuity. So I kind of feel like that's more like it. It's like the snake eating its tail, maybe more than chicken and egg. Right. Because I think without King, none of this would exist. And without this power external to King, he wouldn't be able to make it exist. But it's an interesting conundrum to ponder. Once he's inserted himself in the book, these are the types of questions you have to deal with and grapple with as you continue reading and sort of wonder what's what's happening here. Yeah. And does it have more of an impact than just the words on the page? Is King trying to tell us something more? That's the consequence of King, as we've said. It's like in the Matrix when they go to visit the Oracle and Neo breaks something in her kitchen and she says, well, what's really going to bend your noodle is if I hadn't said anything, would you still have broken it? It's like you said, once King put himself in the story, everything becomes like that. It's like, well, if King hadn't put himself in the story, would this have been possible? If King hadn't put himself in the story and then Eddie met the character in the story, would King have ever thought of Eddie? Right. It's like a time travel paradox, like just makes your brain hurt, but it hurts in a fun way. Another thing that fits into our consequences of King section here is Callahan's final thought before he killed himself. Right before he pulled the trigger, he sent a thought to Roland. He wished him success on his quest. He said, may you find your tower, Roland, and breach it, and may you climb to the top. I wonder, is King finally hinting at what Roland is going to do if he reaches the tower? Yep. The first three or four books was kind of like, all right, we know the quest is get to the tower, get to the tower, get to the tower. And then finally, in Song of Susanna, when we have this source of older and deeper information in Mia, is the first time we're forced to reckon with the notion that does Roland even know what is going to happen when he gets to the tower? Does he have a plan besides just walk up to it and look at it? So now, like, King has presented us with that notion through Mia, does Roland even have a plan? So with Callahan's final thought before he kills himself as he's being overcome by vampires is climb to the top of the tower. And maybe that's important. And was it in book five when Roland recalls the rumor that the top of the tower is empty, that there was nobody there anymore. Yeah. If the top is empty, what's he going to do when he gets up there? Like, is he going to become the hermit in the tower? Like, pull up a chair. Oh, okay. Play some solitaire. Wait for a prince to come so he can put down his hair and let her in. Watch a little bit of Captain Kangaroo. (laughs) Play solitaire till dawn with a deck of 51. Jay, you're getting a little loopy. I am. It must be time for some fun stuff. It's always time for fun stuff. Maybe because it's early in the book and I have a few, even even with Callahan's death, I think things are going to get more and more serious as we go along. I seem to think that there is a lot of fun stuff in this 
first section, not only within the book itself, but even within some of the preface to the book. So yeah. one of the things that I wanted to notice is that Stephen King dedicated the book to me. And to me. I thought it was just me because I thought I was the constant reader, but I guess maybe it's all of us. So it reminded me of when I was named Times Person of the Year in 2006. Nice. I remember when I was Times Person of the Year in 2006 too. I guess I'm not as special as I think I am. No, it's just the two of us. <laughs> <laughs> there was a, a great line in this section. He who speaks without an attentive ear is mute. Mm. And I looked this up to see if King was quoting somebody and he wasn't. So, or at least this might be another one of those, this is the most famous version of this line. And it's certainly not that original of an idea, but I think in those exact words, it's King. And I like it. Yeah, it's good. You got to pay attention. So we've got three epigraphs at the beginning of this book. Uh, the first is the last two stanzas of Child Roll into the Dark Tower came. And the third is Trent Reznor, Nine Inch Nails, Hurt, Heathen King. I'm sure you're out there enjoying that. But the middle one is Bad Company. It's from the song Bad Company by Bad Company. And I am someone who loves eponymous songs. So, Hey Hey, We're the Monkeys by the Monkeys. What's your favorite color? Living Color by Living Color. Backstreet's Back by the Backstreet Boys. In a Big Country by Big Country from the album Big Country. Everybody Wang Chung tonight by Wang Chung. I mean, there's so many of them. The Clash have one. But as I was thinking about eponymous songs, I then realized that there's a song called In the Court of the Crimson King by King Crimson. And we do have a Crimson King. So this is maybe King letting us know, hey, bad company is important, but so is Crimson King. Yeah. If you've got others, tweet at us. So another thing I really liked as part of the book was uh, King's use of tintinabulation. I've always been a fan of this word. It's just fun to say, tintinabulation. <laughs> it's also a nice call out to that raven guy. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, um, Poe is actually credited with inventing this word in his poem, The Bells. Oh, I did not know that. I remembered it from Poe, but when I looked it up to just refresh my memory a little bit, and Wikipedia says that Poe is credited with just manufacturing this word for his poem. So, the tintinabulation of the bells, bells, bells. Very nice. So there's this interesting it reference, and this gets back to our king sort of just throwing in his books for the heck of it. So the turtle, which was introduced back in book five, maybe, sort of Chekhov's turtle, King's turtle here. We, we know it's in the bowling bag, and it might be important, and finally gets into the hands of Father Callahan, and he uses it to instantly stun and take out of the battle many of these footmen because they're entranced by it. And then he drops it and the turtle bounces under a table and quote, there like a certain paper boat, some of you may remember, passes out of this tale forever. It's like, whoa, we just get an it reference out of nowhere, King. And I guess it's just to let us know that don't think that this turtle is coming back. It served its purpose. It's fired its one shot. And now let's move on to the rest of the story. You don't think this was like product placement? Like buy my book. You might remember me from such books as It and Christine. <laughs> hey, it's me, the Salem's Lock guy. So King is writing this post-Seinfeld, and instead of the yada, 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 we get Eddie saying, yata, yata, yata. I think that just might be the uh, Brooklyn pronunciation of yada, yada. Oh, Okay. Because I was just like, oh, well, maybe King doesn't want to pay royalties to Jerry, so he's going to change it to yata, yata, yata. Well, maybe not pronunciation, but yeah, just 
Maybe that's the New England spelling of yada yada. <laughs> yata yata yata. And you know, and actually King wrote this after Seinfeld had gone off the air, right? Correct. But from Eddie's point of view, he's never seen Seinfeld. This is pre-Seinfeld for Eddie when he hears this and you can't just yada yada a time paradox. And wave it away. Nice. So that interview I mentioned earlier is very interesting because Stephen King was writing this book at about the same time as Star Wars Attack of the Clones was in the theaters, mm. which is my least favorite Star Wars movie. I know some people really hate Phantom Menace, but Attack of the Clones is one that I almost walked out of in theaters. I was so bored with it. But it's interesting because in the book, King has a quote about, if he made it to the end of his life's path and into the clearing without another look at Luke Skywalker and another listen to Darth Vader's noisy breathing, he'd still be pretty much okay. And I was wondering if King was thinking of the prequels at that point, like, eh, I could do without him. Yeah, maybe. Maybe he had just reached a saturation point. Little did he know. <laughs> Little did he know. I guess I could have been a little bit of like very subtle shade on, on Lucas here. He probably doesn't like the fact that Lucas goes back and redoes some of his work at times when he's not happy with how he did it. Yeah. Only an amateur would do that. Don't go back to your earlier works and change them and add stuff just because you can. Just because you have the money and power and influence to do it. So as you mentioned earlier, King quotes Nine Inch Nails song Hurt and thought it was a rather pessimistic start to this final book. Pretty dark song. Yeah, I would say so. And it also made me think, have we come full circle? Book one, in its content, made me think of industrial music, where I uh, said that I would have used Ministry's Hero as the soundtrack for when Roland kills everybody in the town of Tull. Call back to episode one. Yes, check it out. But here we are in book seven, and King is directly referencing industrial music with Nine Inch Nails. Mm, yes. It's like he was just hinting at it with the subtext, and now he's <laughs> just putting it in the text. Another metafiction? Of course, when I think of book one, I just think of a ragtime Hey Jude being played, so. Well, yeah, you've got that. But maybe it's a ragtime version of Ministry. Ah. It works on Westworld. Well, maybe if they ever make a movie out of uh, The Dark Tower, we'll see what music they use. Yeah. That'd be, be interesting to explore if somebody ever does that. Yeah. If anyone out there wants to make a movie of The Dark Tower, that'd be great. I'd love to watch it. We'd even be happy to perhaps consult in the writer's room. <laughs> I got to enjoy some more of Roland's mispronunciations in this part of the book. He cannot say hoagie. He says hoggy. Ah, yes. He can't read the word tolls and says trolls. And of course, he still can't say sandwich and he says sandwich. I love it. I don't know what it is about this. It's something about how Roland is, he's long, tall, and ugly, and he's a hard case, and he's a deadly marksman and all this stuff. But it's just something so endearing about the fact that he can't say certain words. I love it. Yeah. There's just this one facet to him that he's just like, he's just like a little kid. You think he's like a little kid, but then when he comes to ordering the sandwich and Eddie says that he wants lots of mayo. As someone who's also not a fan of mayo, I'd have to agree with Roland's assessment of it. I'd want a sauce that didn't look quite so much like cum. Yep. Fair enough, Roland. Fair enough. So my final fun stuff is <clears throat> sort of a callback to the last book when 
we spent some time talking about what a poor metaphor a fax machine was because it really dated the book and set it squarely in this 90s time period when faxes were at their peak. And even though they exist now and no one really uses them and, and knows what they do, there's so much in this first section that turns on screening a call on an answering machine. Yeah. Eddie's got it in his head that Colin must be sitting by his phone waiting for a call, even though they told him to leave town. They're thinking, you know what? He's probably sticking around. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to call and he won't pick up the phone. But once I start talking, he'll have screened the call and then he'll know to pick it up and then talk to me. And sure enough, that's what happens. And I know of literally only one person who still does this nowadays. And that's my 70 something year old aunt who's still screening calls. Everybody else uses caller ID or cell phones or doesn't even talk on the phone anymore and just texts. But here we go. The whole plot of this novel shifting on screening a call on an answering machine. Yeah, I mean, if this were set in 2018, Eddie wouldn't have had a phone because he would have been like, just walk through a magic door into this world and there wouldn't be any payphones anywhere. He'd have to like, I don't know, Yep. break into somebody's house or ask really nicely, can I use your phone in your house or snatch a cell phone out of somebody's hand on the street? And then he'd just call John Cullum. I know his phone number. He's got his cell phone in his pocket. Yeah. Or they would have told him, yeah, lose your cell phone because the bad guys can track you on it. So then no one would be able to reach John Cullum, period. Exactly. I wonder if all of these things that we're talking about, Stephen King had in mind when he wrote Cell just a year or two later, which isn't about these exact issues, but does revolve around the use of cell phones. Yeah. And turning you into a zombie, which, eh, there you go. That takes us to the end of this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com, and our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. You can also find us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower, or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash twoguysdarktower. If you like the show please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we cover Book 7 of The Dark Tower, The Dark Tower, Part 1, Chapters 4 through 7. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McCurr. Thanks for listening. This is me using my fancy new microphone that I got as a birthday present. Lottie freaking da.